0: Six, six, eight, nine,
1: Welcome to Our Talk, a podcast on the history, theory, and practice of international relations. I'm your host, Elon Kluger. This week, I spoke with Professor Peter Spiro. Professor Spiro is the Charles R. Weiner Professor of Law at the Beasley School of Law at Temple University. He's the author of numerous books focusing on international law, mainly on the subject of citizenship, including At Home in Two Countries, The Past and Future of Dual Citizenship, which is the subject of our conversation. I love this conversation as Professor Spiro was the first lawyer on the show, which gave me a different lens to similar issues. I also enjoyed this conversation as I had picked up the book as I had been curious about dual citizenship and then invited him on the show to vehemently disagree with him. But the more I prepared for the conversation and the more I read and began to understand his work, the more I started to agree with his conclusions. After that whole experience, I knew the conversation would be interesting, and indeed it was. One last note. If you enjoy my podcast, I would love it if you would leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts as it helps others find the show. Thank you. You had a job out of law school in the National Security Council. So what exactly did you do there and did it, or how did it affect your view of international relations?
0: I did that after after my clerkships and working at the Department of State. It was as a Council on Foreign Relations International Affairs Fellow. So was I was detailed to use the technical language, it was at a time when the Clinton administration had promised caps on the number of White House staff, but CFR fellows did not count. So I was sort of drafted into doing that. And I worked with Mort Halperin in the democracy directorate. Did that affect my view of international relations? Not a lot, I have to say. I mean, one is struck by how small the NSC staff is after working at the Department of State Department of State has thousands of, of officials. Uh, even the Office of the Legal Advisor, which is a relatively small component, is well-staffed, where at the NSC, you know, it's a, just a couple of people on each subject area. So that was something that was striking. And also the access to intelligence that one gets at the NSC is uh, certainly less constrained than it, than it was at the Department of State. And so you sort of get the, all the fruits of the many arms of the U.S. uh, intelligence establishment in ways that are sometimes uh, impressive. But other than that, I mean, I I can't say that that was a formative experience It demystified working in the White House. You know, I spent time in the Situation Room and in meetings with the National Security Advisor and others, but, you know, the best thing about participating in all these things, I think, is demystified working in the White House so that you're less uh, liable to romanticize the foreign policymaking process.
1: In my reading of uh, a lot of your work, there seems to be an implicit assumption that the nation state or the nation state system is normatively bad? I'm in your Twitter handle too, I think hints at that. It's after the state. So would you say that's a fair characterization? And uh, if so, what comes after the state?
0: That is a a reading that I often encounter. And I I don't mean to question the historical normativity of the state. So the state has done a lot of good things over many centuries now. It's also done a lot of bad things. So I certainly don't romanticize the state. I mean, you just look at how many people have been killed by states, millions of people in the 20th century alone. States aren't all good. States are necessarily exclusionary. So that's another uh, inherent feature of states that I think is often overlooked. That And, and this uh, does play into citizenship that citizenship implies that some people have it and some people do not. So inherently exclusive an exclusionary institution, the state, which is not to say that it's all bad. In its ideal type, where the state represents organic community on the ground, the state has done a lot of good in terms of as a robust platform for the redistribution of resources and rights. And and I validate that track, that part of the track record. I do think that, and this is where my Twitter handle would come in and, and other elements of my work, that the state is now in irreversible decline because it no longer does or can represent community on the ground to the extent that it does, that community is eroding. And, and to the extent that it is that undermines the uh, normative optimality of the, of the state. Now, my work is also often read to imply that I think we're entering into some kind of non-state utopia. Nothing could be further from the truth. I think one reason that people cling to the state is that what comes after the state is very scary. It's it's not clear what comes after the state. One thing that is clear is that a lot of instability will come after the state. As states erode, and we're seeing that already, there are questions about what replaces it. And I don't I don't think during my lifetime at least that answer that, that, that question is going to be answered. And we're in for some rough times in the meantime, until the world sort of settles on a, another uh, form a uh, primary form of uh, association but that but wishing the state to remain what it has been is not going to make it
1: so do you have a vision of what what the state system will look like after or what the world system will look like after the state system
0: well certainly one thing it will not uh, look like is it's not that everybody's gonna have a come by ya moment and that we're all That conflict will be resolved and that we'll all be part of one big happy community under the moniker of world citizenship so that's not where we're heading where we are heading i think is conflict defined along non-state lines so one thing about the state and its period of dominance during the 20th century especially was that global conflict was defined in terms of interstate conflict, states fighting each other, states as community representing communities, organic communities on the ground, fighting with each other, and what were mostly zero sum kinds of conflicts. That's no, I, I think we're already beyond that. And one can um, uh, empirically test that by the numbers of declarations of war, which. You know, we, I don't think we've had one since the 1950s, or at least not a major one. And even wars that are, you know, when we invaded Iraq, thats you could uh, define that as a conflict between the United States and Iraq, but not really, actually. It was really a conflict between the United States and the leadership of Iraq, not between the people of the United States and the people of Iraq. So conflict doesn't seem to be um, definable anymore in those terms. And obviously, the major security threat over the last 30 years, at least, terrorism is, by its terms, a non, it implicates non-state actors. So, but where we're headed, I think, and this is where it gets much hazier, is people identifying themselves along non-state dimensions, defining their loyalties, Um, their identity in ways that don't correlate with the state and conflict will come with those with those non-state identities in ways that I, i i think are still hard to map out although one way in which one interesting way we're seeing it is now with transnational alliances i think most notably on the political right that so trumpists in the united states are increasingly aligning themselves with their political peers in other countries and acting to advance a shared agenda which is clearly not shared which is not defined by national terms in fact it's defined against their their national counter. In a
1: foreign affairs article from 2000, you t- wrote it called uh, The New Sovereignist, American Exceptionalism and its False Prophets. You go through this sort of, I don't know if it's fair to c- characterize it as the classic realist view, but it's certainly adjacent to the, the idea that power is what matters in the state system and that I guess he- hegemony can define what your interests are. And you don't have to really sign on to international law as long as it's not good for yourself. And so I guess... How does your work? I mean, you've critiqued that. So how do you how do you get the U.S. to sign on to international law agreements that are
0: good for everyone but aren't good for the U.S.? Well, I I think it the the point of connection is that there now are shared global interests. Certainly among states, there are shared global interests, and so it is clearly, I think, in the national interest to the extent that that's still a coherent concept, which I'm not sure it is, but defined in traditional terms, it's now clearly in the national interest to join certain international regimes. Now, what I was highlighting in in the Foreign Affairs article is that there are political constituencies in the United States who don't see it that way, and I think mostly for cultural reasons more than for interest-defined reasons, that uh, this is going back to 1950s fears of uh, United Nations troops swooping down in black helicopters uh, in in our backyards, and of world government in its in its old conceptions, which led significant constituencies of conservatives to reject the very concept global governance. And so I think there's still a hangover from that into the Trump the era of Trumpism. Although I think now it's no longer defining in the way that it once was during the era of figures like Senator Jesse Helms and, and other conservatives from, from the old era for whom this bureaucrats in Geneva was a kind of rallying call. Now I'm not sure how much the Trump folks care. They're certainly not fans of the United Nations or of other global agencies, but they seem in this way that goes back to my observation about transnational political alliances to actually now be more open to operating at a global global level. Going to your book, At Home in Two
1: Countries, The Past and Future of Dual Citizenship, would you say there are big examples where dual citizenship should not exist? Because the book goes through and argues that dual citizenship is a human right and that dual citizenship, there's not as many worries about having like a fifth column, or that it it ends up benefiting both countries. So are there big examples where it doesn't make sense?
0: Dual citizenship is on the rise, and in my view, irreversibly on the rise. And a big part of that story is that individuals in a globalized world, many individuals define themselves as being associated with more than one. Have such an identity, I do think it should be a right for her to associate with each of those two states if there's no good reason for her not to be associated with both in formal terms. And the best example of this is where an individual has parents of different nationalities, so the product of a mixed parentage. That person, in, in, the, in a typical case, will identify strongly with the nationality of each parent, the different nationalities of each parent. And there's no reason why that individual should not be able to validate that identity through the formal connection of citizenship simultaneously as a dual citizen. Now, there used to be a good reason not to validate the simultaneous membership, the dual citizenship, because for reasons that are prosaic and a little complicated to describe historically, they gave rise to serious conflict among states. So dual citizens triggered the equivalent of turf battles between the states of which they were nationals. And there was a big downside to that. And so that was actually a good reason to reject dual citizenship as a valid status. Uh, but today, it's because we don't have conflicts between states and because dual nationals are, are not a source of conflict among states. That's not a good reason to deny the, the uh, validity of the status. And it's not a coincidence that now a and uh, I would say, overwhelming majority of countries at least tolerate the status. It's very few countries that now police against dual citizenship. Japan is one of the notable exceptions. But Otherwise, almost all of the OECD states now at least tolerate dual or, indeed, multiple citizenship. So for purposes of establishing it as a right, I think it's where there is a genuine identity. But the acceptance of the status has also given rise to instrumental dual citizenship or strategic dual citizenship, where individuals acquire or retain citizenship because there's a benefit to it, not because they actually identify with the state. And it's less, it's harder to, to justify dual citizenship in that context on normative grounds. There's nothing great about citizenship for sale. It's not, it's not a question of identity. It's really it fits very easily into sort of a neoliberal conception of the new world, but it's very hard to police against. And it's very hard to sort instrumental dual citizenship out from uh, dual citizenship that's acquired as a matter of vindicating uh, multiple national identities. So that's why I think it's a complete lost cause to uh, try to police against the status. And the, the trajectory is uni unidirectional here. Uh, it, it, it's more states are coming to recognize the status, and with a tiny number of cases, states trying to walk it back, in those cases, unsuccessfully. So it's clear where the future is here. And again, it's not because I think it's such a great world that we're moving into. Again, it's a really scary world that we seem to be migrating to, but there's nothing we can do about it dual citizenship along the way.
1: Is there a sense where in the the political community, like how I mean, I guess this goes back to Aristotle, where there's a sort of defined set of people that have their community and they each person is sort of a a citizen within that. Is there a sense where even if your identity is sort of mixed parentage, is there a sense where that's not a right or you could you choose the one that you want to stay in and then you can vote in that and you share in
0: that, but you can't be put in another but why force the choice? So if you're somebody who identifies with more than one state, why should you have to choose? There used to be a good reason for forcing the choice. In my view, there no longer is such a reason. It certainly goes against traditional conceptions of the state, which were founded on well-bounded, segmented, organic communities, which no longer exist. So there is no longer a sense of solidarity In many states, not all states, there's still some states where there is a genuine sense of being of some of something special, defined by nationality. But that state is no longer the United States, in my view. And many other states, community is no longer defined by citizenship, in the sense that you feel like, by virtue of citizenship alone, that you share something special with your fellow citizens.
1: or should people say that work in um, government, should they have to get rid of citizenship with another country? I mean, it could be that getting rid of citizenship, that wouldn't change what their view of that other country is. But maybe as a symbolic sense or as something to just show a sort of devotion to the government that you're serving, could that be something there or no?
0: There are now many examples of high government officials who have had or have dual citizenship. There's no necessary reason why dual citizenship has to be disqualifying for government positions, certainly not at a low level. And in fact, in the United States, which is a little behind the curve on this, being a dual citizen does not disqualify you from the federal civil service. It does disqualify you still in the United States from a security clearance in most cases, which in my view is completely unjustified. I think that multiple citizenship for purposes of government uh, service should be handled in the same way that we handle other conflicts of interest. So that if you are, say, a citizen of Ireland at the same time that you're a citizen of the United States, you probably shouldn't be involved in high level negotiations with the government of Ireland especially not with respect to any, um, any issue where there might be some zero-sum element, which is, in my view, declining number of subjects where what's a loss for one country is necessarily a gain for the other. Nonetheless, I would allow that if you're a dual citizen and you're in the State Department, you probably shouldn't be working that debt, but, but, but that can be handled in the narrowly tailored way that we handle other kinds of conflicts of interest relating to you know, family members who are, for instance, employees of certain corporations, or the fact that you are a former member of a corporation or that you own shares in a corporation. You are recused then from passing at a policy level on issues relating to that corporation. That That's how I would suggest uh, we handle dual citizenship and government service. Uh, otherwise, dual citizenship is just not a problem anymore from a, a government, governmental perspective. Is there a reason that
1: citizenship has been taken as sort of this extraordinary interest or sort of like biasing characteristic, unlike sort of having ownership in shares or a certain religious preference? Is there a reason that citizenship has been sort of focused on in that way?
0: in the in the past yeah well because well you're absolutely right to highlight the fact that citizenship historically as in the last several hundred years has been held above other forms of association so it's been a primary form of association it's been a primary form of identity that has subsumed most other forms of identity The explanation for that, I think, is ultimately a security explanation that it's the state that protected us. And that came to reinforce community defined territorially on the ground on spatial terms. You know, we're living with people, even with people that we never would get to know. But because we're all in the same boat with respect to this paramount interest of defending ourselves, that reinforced organic uh, community on the ground and then and then elevated it above other forms of community again in my view that that security explanation no longer stands it's really not the state is not protecting me in any distinctive way anymore i mean notwithstanding all my tax dollars that are going to national defense expenditures I don't need the state, at least not in the same way that I did, to defend me against the Soviet Union. I mean, yes, there are states that still pose certain kinds of threats, but I don't feel those threats in the same way that I feel other threats in my everyday life now, some of which are handled at the local level or regional level. But uh, the state isn't what it used to be in terms of protecting collective interests and I think that's part of the an important reason for why why it has it's being demoted now as a location for identity and for the protection of individual interests.
1: In the in Chief Justice Earl Warren's dissent in Prez versus Brownell, he said citizenship is man's basic right, for it is nothing less than the right to have rights. I and mean, I, this reminded me of from uh, the origins of totalitarianism. Hannah Arendt discusses statelessness in in ways that's very, very dramatic, and basically describes it as the, one of the worst things that can happen to someone. And Arend goes on to talk about all these sort of treaties after World War One, where various pe- peoples without the various peoples without nations and without self-determination. But I guess I don't know how to square those two because Justice Warren was talking about citizenship as a right, but in this case, dual citizenship means you already have citizenship with one nation.
0: But now rights are mostly. Def- defined by human rights. So the important qualification to Hannah Arendt's famous dictum and then Earl Warren's uh, riff on it in, in the Paris case is that before human rights, that was true. Statelessness was a perilous condition. Legally, you had no protection under international law, except through your affiliation with the state. That is no longer the case. So all human beings have rights directly under human under international law through the vehicle of human rights now of course in you know it's not a bad thing to have uh, citizenship to the extent that then you have your state going to bat with you in the global going to going to bat for you in the global arena but you know that is in some contexts not worth that much. I'd much rather have Google going to bat for me if I were an employee of Google. So there are other forms of association that are also consequential and perhaps more consequential at the uh, international level at the same time that not having a state no no longer deprives individuals of all rights under international law. Dual citizenship, Sure, it gets you some extra rights in terms of uh, rights within your uh, both states of membership. Usually, and this is the main instrumental reason why individuals acquire dual citizenship these days, has to do with rights of and of locational security. So if you're a citizen of an EU member state, you can live and work anywhere in the EU. That's the biggest benefit of EU citizenship In fact. For most people, that would be the only benefit, but an, but an important one. But we're no longer talking about basic rights to um, be free of uh, persecution in the way that was true before the advent of human rights with the end of World War II. Is
1: the current sort of state system or declining certainly? But is the current state system. Is that sort of antithetical to human rights because the state defines rights within its nation, although some nations, si- or of course, they sign on to international agreements for human rights, but is it set up in a way where it, I guess, is contravening that whole idea?
0: Not really, because I think the states are still important agents for protecting rights, including protecting international human rights. So the state is not inherently antithetical to the protection of rights. I do think it will become less important as an agent for the protection of rights as people's identities migrate to other forms of association. And I think we're already seeing that uh, with the degradation even of democratic states. I don't know about you, but I fear maybe I'll... I'm old enough now that I'm not going to see chaos I don't think in with respect to the state sort of the, the deterioration of the state you may you, there, there may come a time in your lifetime where the state really is just not good the national the nation state is just not going to be good for much in terms of protecting your rights either under uh, national law or under international law. So that's the direction I think we're heading in. And the question is then, and is a huge question mark, who is gonna be protecting our rights going forward?
1: When I was thinking about citizenship, I thought about some countries that do have sort of more homogenous communities. So, I I mean, I'm a citizen of both the U.S. and Israel. And I think Israel, I guess, in a way, the citizens for the most part are much more similar than within the U.S. So does citizenship and maybe even dual citizenship saying you're born in Israel, but you're trying to gain something else. Would that mean sort of removing yourself from the community? Because I mean, it's certainly much more coherent there.
0: It is. Dual citizenship is completely accepted in, in Israel. A lot of Israelis acquire dual citizenship for strategic reasons, mostly having to do with global mobility because Israeli passports are not accepted in, in some countries. And so a lot of Israelis get dual citizenship, and my sense is it's no problem at all. It's, I know it's officially accepted, and I think actually it's a status symbol in Israel. Very interesting book by Yossi Harpaz, which uses Israel and Israelis' acquisition of uh, dual citizenship as, an, as a case study and dual citizenship as a status symbol. And I don't think in Israel, I think partly because there is a strong sense of solidarity, that there's any sense of threat posed by dual citizenship. Israel is an interesting case, but I find it a lagging indicator. It's sort of a throwback to an older form of the state that is more clearly uh, organized around a sense of organic membership on the ground. But Israel is the, is now unusual, I think, in that sense that there are there's still some other small, they tend to be smaller states. They tend to be ethnically or religiously homogeneous states where there still is a sense of solidarity that correlates with citizenship. but but the trend is away from that kind of sort of what I call classic. Uh, profile of a nation state.
1: Going to my closing
0: questions, who would you say
1: is a scholar who had a big, big impact on your intellectual upbringing?
0: So that's a very good question. And I have to say, so I had the, I studied, I had the honor of studying with Charles Mayer at Harvard. He was my thesis advisor as an undergraduate European history major was early in his career And he was a a lovely person, still is, just retired. My daughter actually took a course with him as an undergraduate from Harvard a couple of years ago, a great deal of pleasure, important scholar, and one who who kept current with these kinds of trends. His most recent book, very much oriented to questioning territory as a form of organization, very forward-looking and intellectually lively book, although I can't say actually that I owe to Charles Mayer, my orienting sort of skeptically against the state, which I I have to say I came to mostly on my my own through studying first federalism and foreign relations. So looking at the role of states of the United States in foreign relations, and then looking at the role of non-governmental organizations in uh, international relations this was in the 1990s when you still had to spell out ngos and so one luxury of being a law scholar is that you don't have to sort of follow the conventional wisdom for reasons having to do with the, the structure of the legal professoriate and tenuring standards and and really in some ways the culture of the law school world so that I could just challenge these things on my own, which was lonely for a, a while. There weren't, I did not have many fellow travelers in, in, in going this way. Well, one, one, since you're doing a podcast on IR, one one anecdote I'll give you is I had lunch once sitting next to Bob Cohane, the king of IR, whom I got to know. Uh, through off and on engagements in various contexts. And we had a conversation about dual citizenship. And he said, you know what, I'm just against it. And he didn't, he felt like he didn't need to offer a justification, just against it. It's a bad thing. I don't think he'd say the same thing today. I mean, this would probably in 1996 or something, but he wasn't helping me get to a place where i was analyzing dual citizenship or uh, supplying a normative justification for it. So, so I've sort of felt like I've been lucky enough to challenge some conventional wisdoms in ways that I think have been... Vindicated certainly in 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 some in some ways.
1: That was like a lot of international relations has like the the state as the as the basis of all their models. So if the state is declining, then all their books are no longer useful, right?
0: <laughs> yes, I would agree with that. Very nice encapsulation, and I actually have, having been self-taught in IR, I've actually sworn off it at this point because I think it, it is in my view, hopelessly state-centric. Now, there's some IR models, constructivism and its variations that are are more appealing to the extent that they allow for the possibility of consequential non-state power. But I think ultimately IR models are, are not useful in helping us to understand where we are now and where we're headed. More importantly. Who would you say as a younger scholar people should pay more attention to? So I wouldn't draw from the IR world. I'd actually draw from somebody that I'm sure none of your listeners have heard of, but whose writing I would commend to you because it's it's even it's more iconoclastic than mine. It's sort of outflanking me on the particular issue of citizenship. And and his name is Dmitry Kochinoff. He has a a a new Treatment of Citizenship out recently published by MIT Press as part of a series of shorter books that's simply called Citizenship, which which takes citizenship on more frontally as, as normatively unjustifiable, as totalitarian in his view. And I find his work extremely provocative and I'm quite sympathetic to it. And He's a young scholar who is telling it like he sees it in ways that also are not making him friends among those scholars who are defending in one way or another the state as a continuing a good in uh, international relations. So Dmitry Kuchinov is where I would Points. It's entered to even if you disagree with it. And I disagree with elements of his analysis. It's, it's good, provocative reading. And that's the kind of scholarship that I think folks should seek out. And how do you,
1: as a professor of law, read the news in a way that's different, either from international relations scholars, diplomatic historians, or the standard haphazard manner?
0: I'm not sure that I read differently than others, except that we're all now reading the news differently from each other in our siloed news worlds. So I, I don't try to keep up with international relations, broadly speaking. It's, I think, a difficult a difficult thing to accomplish now. And so what I tend to do with the news is look for the the elements that bear directly on my particular areas of interest, which are, which really now is focused on on citizenship and nationality. And so if you're not focused on that in a scholarly way or otherwise, then you're not going to be looking for those. I look for shards. I look for small, obscure examples that help me detect trends or which validate intuitions that I have about where things are heading with respect to citizenship particularly. So I think that's unfortunate. I think it's it's something that's now sort of a scourge on the academic world, the siloed nature in which we process developments on the ground. Of course, we're also siloed in terms of whose work we're reading, that we're now largely focused on each other's work in our particular areas of interest. So I'm mostly in terms of the academic work that I'm Focused on it's now almost exclusively relating to citizenship theory, and there's plenty of it there. There's there's more than enough. It's hard enough for me to keep up with that literature, much much less with the growing areas of in in, in other areas. I mean, one example is when I started looking at NGOs in the 1990s, there was hardly anything written on the subject. Now, a plethora of academic work, impossible to keep up with it in all its applications and, and all the different disciplines that are now engaged with developments relating to non-state actors. So unfortunately, we, we all only have a limited amount of bandwidth. And the tendency, of course, is to focus it on those per, uh, particular areas that in which we're working.
1: Would you say current students know more than Athenian students did in the time of the Peloponnesian War?
0: Yes and no. So there is, there, is there, there have been many advancements in knowledge, including in what we now call the social sciences. So I think students, uh, including students of international relations, now know more than their Athenian predecessors would have. But the breadth of knowledge and a knowledge that's rooted in the solidarity that would have come with that very exclusive membership in the Athenian community, that is now lost. And there are good things about it being lost. It was a very exclusive and exclusionary community, but there are also things to be lamented in losing that sense of of trust among uh, members of a community, which I think it is inherent in our human nature that we look for community. And so we're rediscovering it in 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 other forms. And I think it's now a challenge for social scientists going forward to identify those new locations of community and to systemize, to systemize them and then also to apply a normative lens mindful of the ways in which they they can and will advance protection of individual rights, but then also to be uh, sensitive to and uh, uh, aware of the ways in which they they can impede the advancement of those rights at the
1: global level. Professor Spiro, thank you for being a part of IR Talk.
0: Thank you so much, Elon. Terrific questions. I really, I really enjoyed it.
1: Thank you for listening to IR Talk. Again, if you enjoyed the episode, I would really appreciate a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. See you on the next episode.